Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and we are here to break down everything that happened in WWE over the last week. We are now two weeks removed from Survivor Series War Games and still plenty far away from the Royal Rumble. So there's a lot of in-between stuff, the in-between times uh, going down across SmackDown and Raw. We're going to break it all down for you today on the latest edition of your favorite show. But I would not be able to begin an edition of Getting Over without reminding you that this podcast is you may say, Silver King, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. It means going back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, Vintage, Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast as a whole. Heading on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, dropping those five-star ratings on Apple, taking a few extra moments out of your life, leaving a five-star written review for us. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And guess what? We did get a new one last week. So that's exactly what we are going to do right now from the notorious KNG all about the five. I've been a wrestling fan for four decades. You're aging yourself right there, my buddy. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy the way you guys break down wrestling, even when it's bad. I appreciate you demanding better content, but not necessarily bashing the companies. Better yet, you offer solutions. Hopefully someone is listening. Trips, TK, Kenny, Keep up the good work. So I thought that was a really funny review. But if you've been watching wrestling for four decades, then you, sir, are officially washed as my former co-host used to be. And don't worry, I'm getting there myself as well, as is Chris, although he's a few uh, years past. But one other reminder for you guys. Uh, I said this uh, last week on the shows. I just want us to get to 400 uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts, written and regular. So we're, we're getting there. We're creeping up. It turns out that we actually have One rating or review for every episode of the podcast that we have done to this point. This is going to be episode 378, and we have 378 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if we get one per show until we get to the end of the year, we still won't be at that 400 number that I want to hit. So you guys need to surpass that. If we get 400 ratings and reviews for getting over on Apple Podcasts, I will stop reading this part of the show. Stop you know, teasing you to do the ratings and reviews twice per episode. I'll cut it down to once. Maybe I'll do it at the end of the show. So you don't even have to listen to it on the intro. Every reason in the world for you guys to leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. And if you happen to listen on Spotify, well, you can please leave a five-star rating there as well. Those matter. As we found out this week, Chris, uh, with all of the incredible uh, Spotify wrapped messages that we received, screenshots, uh, notable uh, top five list, number of minutes listened. Pretty cool to see everyone uh, have us so far up in their Spotify rap. Yeah, I, I wasn't on the uh, AEW NXT pod we did last week, um, so I didn't get to comment it at first, but it was very, very cool to see everybody who reached out to share their Spotify wrapped uh, with us. I'm I'm not someone who uh, uses Spotify, so I don't have one of my own, but anytime that stuff popped up, it's very humbling to see. You know, we've been doing this pod for almost three years now. And anytime I hear from somebody, hey, listen to the pod, heard it, loved it, uh, get the Spotify rap. Just very, very cool. Very nice. Uh, appreciate everybody who has listened uh, along the way. And 
and shared uh, shared that with us after an eventful 2022 in wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. And and don't get it twisted. We will be celebrating the end of 2022 uh, in general, but also in the world of professional wrestling. I mentioned last week on the show, we're not only doing the Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. The media. Are you missing the... I mean, I come on. It's, I'm, it's I laid it up for you. I, it's been a I year. laid it up for you. It doesn't matter. I mean, I laid it up for you. Ready to hit it right there. If anything, let's try me, it one more if time. Anything, if anything, me missing it is the whole, it's the whole bit now. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's kind of the gimmick, but it's, it's, you know, you really should be on point though at this point. Let's try it one more time, Chris. Not only listeners getting overheads, will we be bringing you the 2022 Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties. Not only will we be bringing you those year-end awards, we're also going to do another special year-end episode here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Chris and I are still working out the details. The days in the month are narrowing, uh, but we will be handling all of this extremely soon. Keep a lookout for uh, nominations for those Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. The Meaties. Uh, keep an eye out for those on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Not only should you follow us for episode drops, wrestling news and analysis all week long, including during all those major shows, we watch them along with you and love conversing with you. But not only that, we will have opportunities for you guys to uh, provide nominations for all of our Getting Over Award categories as we kind of uh, get through that process. We will also then post a full survey that you way you guys can vote in the Getting Over Awards. You will have an equal share vote along with myself and vintage Chris Vanini. And we will do that special episode at the end of the year where we present to you the 2022 Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. The Meaties. All right. We got three for three there at the end. I guess three for four in totality. Nevertheless, those are coming soon. Uh, we, we got plenty of great stuff for you at the end of the year. Silver King is still working on additional interviews, uh, WWE talent, and hopefully maybe AEW talent as well. So it's, it's going to be stacked, jacked, and packed. I don't even know if that's a phrase like that it. makes any sense. I but like it. It's, that's, what, that's what it's going to be. The end of 2022 here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, stacked, jacked, impact. That's what we're doing right here. But that is not what we're doing today. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is still a stack show. It's still a packed show. I don't know that it's that jacked up, though. Uh, But we do have plenty to talk about from the world of WWE. We'll give it to you as we always do with the main event, the good, the bad and the ugly covering everything across SmackDown and Raw and also just in the news in general about WWE. There's actually two pretty big news stories out there surrounding the company that don't exactly have anything to do with what happened on television this week. We will cover those in the course of the show. Chris, before we get into those special segments, you know, coming off of last week's SmackDown that we praised over and over for being just a tremendous go-home show, this week, it clearly felt to me like we got a filler episode with like a B team from a talent standpoint. And that's not to say that the people on the show, some of them aren't top level stars, but we didn't get Roman Reigns, Drew McIntyre, who is clearly injured. He, he said on Twitter, we'll talk about that later. And Ronda Rousey. Bray Wyatt didn't even appear in front of the crowd. Braun Strowman was on screen for 30 seconds and like him or hate him, the crowd absolutely loves him. You barely saw him. I didn't think SmackDown or Raw in particular were bad. I wouldn't use that word to describe them. But I found it interesting that on both shows, they led with segments from the bloodline, which is the hottest act in the company and never returned to it over the course of the two hours on SmackDown, 
or the three hours on Raw. Now, granted, both situations had longer segments to open the show, but they never really like went back and addressed it again. Once they left the screen, for the most part, everything else on SmackDown and Raw just felt secondary. It, and to me, it's one of those like gift and a curse situations where it's great that you have them and it's great that they're so hot, but it's also taking everything else that you're doing because you're not building towards a major show. So your storylines are all in this murky kind of purgatory mode. It's taking everything else and it makes it look pale by comparison. And given Raw almost never has a world champion on it right now, I felt it was particularly noticeable when Bloodline came and went on Monday night. Yeah, we, we've we reached that point that we talked about was coming for a while, which is post-Survivor Series, there's going to be a lot of kind of dead time with nothing to build up to for a while. And we are now officially in that. Um, the episodes were... Uh, SmackDown and Raw were fine. They weren't offensive. They weren't terrible, but there was not a ton happening. There, there were some some things advanced, some number one contenders, some triple threats and, and all that, but um, clearly the star power was lacking after, uh, after Survivor Series, and we may have a few weekends like this over the next two months, really. Yeah, they both felt like they just had a lack of juice. That's the best way I can describe it. And it makes me even more curious. Like, I understand why they got rid of day one. It made sense given uh, the college football bowl games, the NFL, just the conceptualization of doing that show on that weekend, specifically on that day when they can. It really doesn't make that much sense. I know it was successful last year in Atlanta, uh, despite the uh, issues like Roman Reigns like getting COVID and not being able to compete, obviously. Um, so I know I know they had success from a financial standpoint last year, but it was always a problematic booking to put that show on that weekend. But it's really strange to me that they did not see an opportunity this week to kind of say, okay, we're going to do two special TV shows, a special Raw and a special SmackDown, and we're going to build some matches for it because they could easily do it. They could do it uh, Christmas week, they could do it New Year's week even, you know, the, the Monday after New Year's Day. I don't even know what day it falls on this year, uh, but the Monday after and the Friday after or the Friday preceding and the Monday succeeding, uh, you know. So I just I think like if they had announced special shows and they were building up championship matches and storylines and feuds for that intermediate show, then we would be way better off, not just in the interim in terms of all these shows that are leading up to it, which makes them all more exciting and more important, but it also you know, doesn't mean that you're putting all your eggs in the Royal Rumble basket and you're building, you know, what what is it, seven weeks away for that show? That's a long ass time. Like, you know, we got on AEW, Chris, for at one point, literally doing a special TV show every single week or like 12 out of 16 weeks over the course of three months or four months, however long it was. It was, it was asinine, okay? But I think what AEW is doing right now, and they do this at the end of every year, is smart. They have winter is coming in mid-December. They're saying, hey, look, you're not going to get another pay-per-view for four months after full gear, but we realize it's the end of the year and we do need to build to something special. So they do Winter is Coming. They usually do New Year's Smash on those first shows coming out of the, the year turnover going into 2023. I'm sure they'll do it again. So they have a couple special shows where they say, hey, we're going to build some important matches and some important cards you're going to be able to enjoy, and then we'll get to our next pay-per-view. And, and I think WWE... They're just not really doing that. And I'm not saying they have to do exactly what AEW does, but it's a really good opportunity for them to try something like that out, given they canceled a pay-per-view. And instead of that, they're just doing normal shows. And I just, they don't feel important. 
Yeah, kind of surprising. Um, you know, you could go. I mean, they used to do the Raw Super Show. You know, SmackDown and Raw together. Do do, do a week of two Super Shows where everybody's on every roster or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, and look, it, it's look. We're only one week out of Survivor Series. There's time to still do this. They don't need to necessarily, you know, announce it so far in advance. But no, but you we, think they we, would though? Is what right. I'm but saying. we and we we've got two people who are going to compete for a number one contender for. One of the women's titles, um, that's uh, that's a spot you could put that. that that's something you say, hey, in a couple weeks, we're going to have um, Bianca versus whoever wins, and it's going to be at the Super Show on this day. Like, start to kind of build to that. And yeah, maybe they're not. That, maybe they are not doing something like that. No, that, that's a great point. They're, they're setting up all these number one contenderships, which is fantastic. But where are the title matches taking place? Well, right. they're going to take place on TV. So why not have them those title matches take place on a special show? Then you're saying... And by the way, every time you're having one of these matches or you're talking about it, you're promoting it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bianca, you know, this person and this person are going to fight. And the winner will face Bianca Belair at WWE, whatever, Christmas Chaos. I mean, they're they're not going to call it Christmas, obviously, but whatever the case might be, like that special show, right? Holiday extravaganza or, you know, so so they have the ability to do it. And it seems like that's much of what they're doing and doing so many number one contenderships. They did one already. They did a whole tournament for one on SmackDown for the Intercontinental Championship. They're doing a very mini, tiny little tournament for the Women's Championship on Raw. And they're having a number one contendership match for the United States Championship on Raw. Well, that's great. That's These are things we want. And those make those individual matches more exciting. But what's the end goal? It's to have those title matches. Are you just going to put them on a regular next week SmackDown? Or are you actually going to build to something? And, and I think, may, look, maybe it's just because as... Wrestling fans, particularly those who have watched WWE for decades, were conditioned to say, okay, the big matches have to happen at a pay-per-view or a special event. And maybe that's conditioning that they're actively trying to change. And if so, awesome. But we are conditioned that way. And that is what I'm expecting. And I do think it would help them, especially given Monday Night Football is still in existence as competition for Raw. And especially because as you get towards the end of the year, it's difficult to pull ratings on Friday nights uh, when, you know, people are out of school, especially kids in that key demographic, 18 to 49, they're out partying, all that type of stuff. It's it makes sense to build one special episode of Raw and one of SmackDown towards the end of the year and really put some big matches on it to try to pop a rating. So I'm just surprised that they don't do it. I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world. Um, and yeah, you know, a lot of this show and a lot of every wrestling podcast is here's what we would do if we had the book or we had the druthers and the opportunity to kind of, you know, move the product along. So I do think it's a it's not so much that I'm that I'm angry or upset about it. I just I'm surprised. I'm surprised they didn't take the opportunity to do something like that. I agree, because usually they start building in the next pay-per-view when you come back. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll find out. And maybe they will. And for some reason, they're going to announce it next week instead of this week. I don't know why. Because uh, you'd want to sell tickets and you'd want to you know, get the whole thing, ex- uh, people excited for it. But we'll find out. Nevertheless, uh, we have plenty to talk about from SmackDown and Raw this week. And we're going to begin on this podcast like we always do by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. So, yes, we are in once again, indeed, going to start with the bloodline, which just was uh, relatively dominant over both shows in terms of, like I said earlier, the primary key storyline that got the fans the most excited and everything that followed the bloodline, both on Friday and Monday, 
it just didn't really compare in terms of fan energy, excitement, pop, that whole deal. So we'll start with SmackDown, of course, then we'll go over to Raw on SmackDown. The Bloodline opened without Roman Reigns. Solo Sokoa was notably the only one wearing all black instead of red like the other guys. Sami Zayn said they leveled up because they had the longest reigning tag team champions. But Jimmy Uso cut him off to say Sami deserves credit as the clear MVP of War Games, I think they were referring to. Uh, Jimmy kept calling him my dog, and he mentioned Sammy Uso, which got the fans chanting. Jay admitted to not liking Sammy for a long time, saying that Sammy earned his respect, and Zane is the reason the Bloodline won War Games. They got Sammy to say he's feeling Usy, and they did a double handshake with Sammy, so the one that he normally does with Jimmy, he did it simultaneously with both Jimmy and Jay, which is actually pretty impressive that someone could do that with both their arms. I, I think I'd screw that up. <laughs> uh, Solo just stood there. Uh, then the Brawling Brutes came out for a scheduled match. So we had Sheamus against Sami Zayn. That was the scheduled match. Sheamus stopped Sami from trying his beats. Then he came back with an Irish curse and Cloverleaf. He caught Zayn flying with a pump knee. Zayn countered Avalanche White Noise into a Sunset Flip Powerbomb, but Sheamus came back with a regular White Noise. The Usos distracted, leading to a kick on Sheamus and a blue thunderbomb that came for a near fall before the Brutes battled them outside. Sokoa gave the bloodline an advantage at that point. Sheamus countered a haluva kick with a pump knee as the Usos distracted again. Sheamus had Sammy over his back, but Jay slid in with a super kick and pulled him down. That allowed Sammy to trap him in a pinning combination to get the win. In 18 minutes and 30 seconds, really long match. The story was basically the bloodline and Jay specifically helping Zayn get the win after he obviously helped the bloodline get the win at war games. It's almost repetitive to point out continuously why this works, but they certainly hit again here. Sammy is fully buying into being a fully fledged bloodline member, and it almost feels like maybe it's a long extended con or setup for the rug to get pulled out from under him, or at least maybe that's how it's supposed to feel. The match is solid. The finish was smart with Jay immediately repaying Sammy for a sacrifice at War Games. And it was just a really good opening, you know, 20, 25 minutes, I would say, of SmackDown. Yeah, it, it was a natural follow up to SmackDown, which is Sammy saved them. They seem to all be on the same page. Now, the, the final kind of step of that is the Usos helping out Sammy to win. And Michael Cole sold the hell out of it, you know, with the, with the pin at the end saying the Usos helped Sammy Zayn win. Like, like, it was, you know, we got the hug at War Games and everything, but this was an actual actionable showing of that support for Sami Zayn. And it didn't need to be any more than that. We we don't need to talk. We don't need to think right now about, all right, when is it going to end for Sami Zayn and the Bloodline? They're still, they're in the process of now building with Sami together before it eventually comes crumbling down. And this was a step toward that. Uh, like you said, 18 minutes, very long match. Um, I'm, I'm kind of back and forth on, it seemed like a lot of matches were long this weekend, but, but this was one, it being your top storyline makes sense to, uh, to set it up that way. So yeah, this was enjoyed a good match, told the story, advanced the story, uh, good stuff. There was also a lot going on in the match that kind of necessitated it being long, the interferences and the storytelling and all that. But yeah, it was a surprisingly long match to open a show. Uh, Sammy later locked the bloodline dressing room uh, for them to leave. Like he basically locked the door and he was ready to take the guys to dinner. Jimmy sent Solo to follow Sammy to get his back since Zane has recently made a lot of enemies. When they left, Jimmy asked Jay if he got over Sammy lying to his face. 
Jay hesitated at first, but said Roman saw what he needed to see, and Sammy proved himself at War Games. As they were celebrating that, Sheamus attacked both of them with a shillelagh. He and Drew McIntyre were scheduled to get a tag team title opportunity next week, given they beat the Usos in the advantage match for the War Games and deserved it. And that's what I said, you know, when we were, when they booked that match, and, and then eventually when we got the result, it was, well, I hope they don't do the thing where like these two stars beat the tag team champions and then don't get a title match when they actually beat them clean, which they did. And now they are scheduled or they were scheduled. We'll talk about that more later to get a tag team title match. So I thought Jimmy was particularly good on this episode of SmackDown and particularly in this segment. Just after Jay has finally come around to Sammy, now his brother is starting to sow seeds of doubt, even though Jimmy has been all about Sammy the entire time. Think back to like when Jimmy reluctantly joined the bloodline. Has he been looking for a spot to save his brother and pull him out of this all along? Has he been playing Sammy this entire time, knowing that Sammy kind of gets under Jay's skin and might be something that could kind of form a wedge between him and Roman Reigns? Or do Roman and Jay have a plan not involving Jimmy or Jimmy and Solo? So super interesting stuff, a really strong continuation to the storyline, even without getting Reigns on the show, which is always a disappointment. But I still thought they did a lot of really good story building here. I, and I'm glad they acknowledged, hey, he lied to your face like a week ago. <laughs> you know, like, I'm glad we we still acknowledged that. And it's still in play and it's still something to think about. And things are not 100% hunky-dory. There can be a couple cracks in this whole thing while it seems to be building bigger and bigger. And yeah, it was very good. Uh, very good acting, essentially, you know, from Jey Uso. For sure. Now let's move over to Raw. Uh, before Raw, the Usos arrived at the arena and they were angry that they had to dodge Matt Riddle, who was rolling like down a ramp on his scooter, right back to stupid Riddle in the scooter. Uh, Elias showed up to try to calm them down when, why he cared, by the way, Elias, about them getting upset. I have no idea. Elias showed up to try to calm them down when Solo attacked from behind and they beat Elias's ass, drilling his head into a steel gate. Then in the ring to start Raw, they announced the title match was off. Riddle said they aren't being Usi. Zane said he is an Usologist and proclaimed each of the bloodline as Usi, and the crowd responded with him. It was pretty cool. Uh, Riddle announced he did find a partner to have the match anyway, and even though they're not bros, they both hate the bloodline. So, of course, out came Kevin Owens. Now, this was all interesting because before Raw, Drew McIntyre announced on Twitter that he's not cleared medically for the tag team title match with Sheamus on Friday. So my assumption was they took out Elias to add Sheamus to this match and basically killed two birds with one stone. Riddle and Sheamus, both were supposed to get a title match, now they get one, and then they just move on from it. Instead, a replacement for a tag team that was already thrown together gets a tag team title shot. Like, the segments were entertaining, so... It's not that I'm necessarily complaining or anything, but it's just not the most exciting booking. And then I thought for a second, okay, maybe KO is joining this match and he's also going to replace McIntyre. So parallel booking, right? Like he gets one title opportunity here and he hates the bloodline so much that he's even going to go to SmackDown and try to get it a second time. But WWE announced that McIntyre's replacement is actually going to be Butch. So... I, you know, that was like my saving grace booking. Like my, my fantasy booking was like, oh, have KO do both. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a good reason to injure Elias. Instead, we didn't even get that. So 
I just don't really understand the purpose of the attack. Yeah, I did not understand it either. I didn't know if maybe Elias is actually hurt or not cleared or what. But, I mean, we, we said last week Riddle and Elias just asking for a title shot and getting it was completely bizarre, especially for a team that had just been thrown together and had not been, been doing much as a tag team. You know, I don't know if they thought, hey, this doesn't make sense. Let's just pull it, throw in Kevin Owens and because Kevin Owens. But that doesn't make any that doesn't make any more sense, though. No, but Kevin Owens is at least like in the middle of a bloodline story. So it'll it'll get more of a reaction than if we did a Riddler Elias. I don't know. It was weird. It would get more reaction, but they're not even a team. Like at least they somewhat established Riddle and Elias as a team. Riddle and Owens, they have they're not deserving of a title shot at all. No, but. But like you said, Kevin Owens hates the bloodline. He's getting it on title shots. Sure. I, I don't know. I ultimately, I don't know why this happened. It, I don't know if they booked themselves into a corner where they had to change it. I don't know if something was actually up and they had to change it. But it was indeed, yes, very weird, no matter who it was. Ultimately, Yeah, it was notably odd is the best probably way yeah. to kind of put it. So let's move to the match. We had the Undisputed Tag Team Championship, the Usos defending against Riddle and Owens. Zayn helped Jay outside and KO got in Solo's face. Riddle hit a tope to take them out that opened a spot for Jay to superkick Owens. That left it two on one back in the ring with Riddle bouncing off the ropes for the 1D and the title retention for the Usos. Uh, The bloodline beat up Riddle after the bell, so Owens chased them with a chair, but Sokoa remained in the ring. So he starts beating on Riddle solo, pun intended, I guess. Uh, Sokoa hit Riddle with Umaga's Samoan spike and then ran into him with a regular hip attack before doing another hip attack with a steel chair wrapped around Riddle's neck in the corner. Solo looked like a total badass walking off expressionless with his black hoodie up. Riddle got put in a neck brace. He got boarded and carted off. The match was whatever. The crowd was entertained. So that was a plus. You know, it, the match, if, even if I don't like a wrestling match, if the crowd is happy with it, then it's rel- it's a positive at the end of the day. I thought the finish to it was a little bit rough. The post-match attack, though, was outstanding. Sokoa looked like an absolute badass MFer, and Riddle got written off, honestly, at like the perfect time, given his gimmick has completely reverted after RK Bro, and we've talked about that already. Hopefully he returns. I'm guessing it's going to be a Royal Rumble return. He'll get a nice pop, and maybe they give him some better booking and character work when he eventually comes back and gets on the mic. Back to Solo, seeing him use his uncle's Samoan Spike, Umaga, that was so effing cool. The booking of Sokoa, to me, is some of the best that WWE has done for an NXT call-up to the main roster in a long, long time. Yeah, ultimately, my takeaway from the entirety of the Bloodline storyline from SmackDown and Raw is it's time for Solo Sokoa. You know, he has been the stern face, doesn't break, tough guy, doesn't say a lot. He's been kind of the muscle, essentially, for the group for a while. Last week, we had the Usos and Sammy all celebrating, trying to get him to celebrate or break or something, and it didn't happen. And now he gets to shine here with the beatdown of Riddle, doing some of the Umaga stuff. He has... He, we, 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 I think last week it was, I said I wanted to give a special shout-out to Solo Sokoa, who I think had been doing a very good job in more than carrying his weight for his role in the bloodline. And this week was the... Step up from that. Now, now, now he gets to actually make a move and do some things and remind people he's not just the fifth guy hanging around there, that he's a tough guy, that he's maybe the guy you should be scared of the most 
in this group. So I thought this was awesome. It was a reminder that there's still so many things they can do with him moving forward. And uh, just really looking forward to what's next. Back-to-back really good weeks for Solo Sokoa. Yeah, there's so much they can do with him. There's so much they can do with them in totality, the Solo and individual members of the Bloodline. Uh, You know, there was a while where it looked like Solo and Sammy had their own relationship going, but that seems to have kind of fizzled as Solo has only gotten more stoic and quiet and serious. But initially when he joined, it seemed like they might be the friends of the group with Jimmy and Jay obviously being the brothers and Roman overseeing all of them. So they have kind of tweaked a little bit. Now, there's actually a little bit more to talk about here because we did mention RK Bro and Randy Orton recently underwent fusion surgery on his lower back. Now, Orton hasn't been on TV since May, and it seems like initially the goal was for him to just rehab and avoid surgery. Well, clearly he had surgery, so that did not work. And I think the same thing may have happened with Robert Roode. Uh, Just recently, Robert Roode posted on Instagram uh, that he had surgery. I think it was neck, not back. I could be wrong about that, but serious surgery nevertheless. Um, I think similarly, he was out trying to rehab. It didn't work. So he ultimately had surgery. Now, in terms of Orton, uh, fusion surgery on your lower back, that is a six to 12 month recovery. And that's if he ever recovers to get back in the ring. It's not saying that it necessarily be debilitating, but you certainly don't want to return too quick. And you don't want to return at all if doctors tell you that you can't. And and certainly there's something either life-threatening or life-altering, which a bad lower back can be life-altering. Um if that's in danger of happening, right? So we don't know whether we're ever going to get Randy Orton again. But if we do, and I say this specifically because Riddle was written out on TV, I got a lot of people, oh, do you think he got written out so he can return with Randy and they can go win the tag team titles at WrestleMania? I mean, that sounds incredible, right? If that happened, man, that'd be awesome booking. But uh, with Orton having the surgery, six to 12 months, that puts you well past WrestleMania. I mean, if the Usos retain the titles, and they try to do it at SummerSlam next year, I mean, I guess that would be theoretically possible, but I don't see the Usos retaining their championships past WrestleMania, and I certainly don't think that they would be uh, delaying this out uh, so long just to get Randy Orton back. So, you know, maybe get Randy Orton back so they could possibly win the tag team title. So, yeah, for those who wonder or who messaged us or other otherwise may be wondering, no, I don't think Riddle was written off to come back with Orton. Separate situations, best I can tell. But I really do, Chris, like the idea of writing Riddle off TV, bringing him back in the Royal Rumble. That's going to be a nice little surprise pop in that event. And maybe we get either a more serious version or just a different version of his character, because everything that they have done with him uh, since Triple H took over, since the end of the Matt Riddle, Seth Rollins feud, the fight pit, ever since then, it's been a hugely downward, or I should say drastically downward trajectory for Riddle. Yeah, first off, that terrible news about Randy Orton. I remember, shoot, when when the rumors of injury first happened, we weren't sure if it was a big deal or not, and then it just kind of dragged and dragged and dragged, and that just kind of fizzled. They obviously had to adapt on the fly with Riddle, and the Seth stuff was pretty good, and we liked it, and then they ran out of ideas, you know, and so they said, well, he'll go back to being the the childish kind of character. Eh, put him with Elias. Yeah, it's not really working. Let's just let's take a step back here. Unless he's actually hurt and we as far as we know he's not. He needs to get they need to figure out what to do with him. And I, I think taking him off TV 
figuring something out, you know, over the next month or so and moving forward is, is a good step. You don't need to have these guys on every week if you're not doing anything with them, especially a guy like him who you think has a lot of potential. You don't want to kind of squander it or water him down or something like that. So uh, I think that's probably a good step in the right direction for everybody. All right, so let's move, Chris, to the second part of this main event. It's not going to be a long conversation or anything, but last week I spoke um, actually, really, the last two weeks I've spoken on our AEW and NXT show about the future of William Regal. And for those uh, WWE fans who may not watch AEW or don't exactly know what's been going on over there, uh, William Regal, for you know, since he joined AEW, has basically been the uh, manager, for lack of a better term, the overseer of what has been established on that brand as the Blackpool Combat Club with John Moxley, Brian Danielson. Uh, and Cla- uh, Claudio Castagnoli, who is Cesaro, and Wheeler Yuta, who's one of their younger wrestlers over there. And Regal's been this you know, figurehead who's had some really great moments, I think, on AEW television. And all of a sudden, over the last two weeks, he's been seemingly written off of television. First, John Moxley, who um, was their AEW champion, but lost their championship uh, to MJF. At full gear. First, he was angry because William Regal turned on him. So he basically got in his face, threatened him, told him never to come back. Brian Danielson got between them to prevent Mox from attacking Regal. And Regal kind of had to slink off and kind of cowered his way out. And then this past week on Dynamite, Regal did show up because John Moxley had get th- gotten thrown out of the arena for a segment with MJF, in which MJF, who Regal helped beat Mox for the title in a heel turn, actually turned on him and punched him in the back of the head. With some brass knuckles, Regal got carted off, and that was it. And there had been rumors, uh, you know, murmurs and rumors kind of going on for the last two weeks, really starting with when Mox kind of banished him uh, from AEW, that perhaps Regal was on his way out of AEW. And then this past week, with MJF literally punching him in the back of the head, or in the neck, um, that obviously grew the crescendo of, of those rumors and murmurs uh, even further. And as it turns out, according to multiple reports, Regal is indeed on his way out of AEW. And not only that, it is expected that he is returning to WWE. What's particularly interesting here is that Regal's only been there for, I don't even know, seven, eight, nine months. He basically joined up with AEW after he got released by WWE in that wave of cuts where Vince McMahon just got rid of every single person who Triple H liked. Like if, if you were part of NXT and you were loyal to Triple H, you were gone. It was part of the 2.0 transition and all that type of stuff. And Regal was one of those people who got cut. Now, Regal is extremely close with Triple H. It's not just employee-employer relationship or mentor-mentee. They are legitimately close. Like Triple H sees William Regal as his right-hand man, very much in the way that Vince McMahon probably saw people like Bruce Pritchard and Johnny Ace. So somehow, and you know, the, the details aren't fully there yet, but somehow Regal either had a nine-month contract with AEW with perhaps an option to extend, and then the extensions would have been for years, you know, at a given time, or uh, he had a three-year contract with AEW and went to Tony Khan and basically said, I want to leave and here's why, and Tony let him out of that contract. This is all very interesting because we have seen Tony Khan do two different things. Number one, we've seen him um, listen to kind of Cody Rhodes who, you know, Tony could have extended his contract without his permission or without his um, say-so, I guess. It was Tony's option to extend Cody's contract. He could have extended it. 
they came to a mutual agreement. It wasn't for the best. And he let Cody walk. We've also heard of Tony Khan not releasing other contracted talent who have asked for their releases, most notably Andrade El Idolo and Malachi Black. And both of them remain with AEW. Now here with William Regal, you know, we don't know the specifics of the situation, but what we do know is Regal is basically no longer with AEW and seems to be on his way back to WWE, most likely in a fully backstage role. I don't think he would reemerge as general manager of NXT because Shawn Michaels has largely stepped into that role, but it's certainly possible that he could. My expectation is it's largely backstage, helping Triple H with talent, perhaps dabbling in creative a little bit, and really just being the right-hand man that Triple H needs now that he has creative control and talent control over not just NXT, but of course, the entire main roster too. So I did want to break that down, explain the situation for everyone. And Chris, certainly if you have anything to say, if you want to weigh in, you know, feel free to do that before we move on to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, it kind of also brings a different meaning to the Triple H tweet of William Regal saying War Games, uh, the day of Survivor Series. <laughs> it does. You know, we, we, we weren't sure. We, we noticed that at the time, and weren't sure if, oh, they just didn't want to use Regal on the TV show or whatever. Well, now maybe there was something more behind that. Uh, obviously, can't speak necessarily to the situations at AW. We don't know why William Regal uh, has decided to leave. We do know he has had a long relationship with Triple H, with WWE. He didn't trash the company on the way out. Uh, he he did some interviews on Jericho's podcast and uh, was grateful to the company for paying for some of his medical surgery said he mm -hmm. had while he was there. So um, it's just a, a good lesson in uh, never a need to burn bridges, always keep relationships open. And William Regal coming back in, in a on-screen, off-screen, or whatever it is, is obviously good for NXT because he was really one of the heart and souls of that place and developing a lot of the people that we have here together. And I know this isn't the AEW pod, but... Um, it sucks to see him leave there because, you know, I, I really liked what he was doing with Blackpool Combat Club that obviously didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> uh, I, I guess for, for Regal, it probably helps and maybe he doesn't have to travel anymore. He can just stick around in Florida. Um, so, yeah, very, uh, very interesting in the never ending WWE AEW cross promotion drama. It's always tough to determine, like, is someone being used well or, or are they just great? And I think with Regal, it's, he's just great. Like no matter what role you put him in, yes. he can be Steven Regal, the man's man. He can be William Regal, the NXT general manager. He can be the Blackpool Combat Club guy. You know, he can, he can work on screen with, um, I feel like, I don't even know if this actually happened, but I feel like at one point he had an interaction with that guy, Eugene in WWE. Like maybe I'm just misremembering, but like you can do that or you can have mm -hmm. him be super serious announcing war games. It doesn't matter. William Regal is awesome. Um, and, and I think for WWE, this is a massive positive, even if we never see him on screen again, which we will, I mean, at a minimum, the next time there's a war games, he will announce war games. There's no question about that. Uh, so, so whether we see him on screen consistently or don't, to me, it's really not much of a matter. It's more just him being in WWE in the role that Paul Levesque, Triple H needs him to play within his fiefdom, within his organization. Uh, that I think will make for better product, a better talent coming into the company, better talent utilization between brands. All of that stuff's going to be a major positive. Now, this isn't official yet. You know, him out of AEW 
seems to be nearly official, if not official. Him back in WWE is not necessarily official to this point, but it seems to be the clear expectation of everyone who has sourcing regarding that. I particularly don't on this subject. I've been trying to find out, haven't been able to, trying and failing. Nevertheless, I do think um, it's a huge positive for WWE in the long term, and we'll see what they end up doing with him. I mean, Chris, would you be opposed to Adam Pierce, Raw General Manager, William Regal, SmackDown General Manager? Of course not. I, I, I think Pierce has done a great job. He hasn't really been featured as much anymore, but he's still there once in a while, does a great job. Um, but again, that would that would get back to William Regal traveling every week, which True. I don't know, maybe he does or doesn't want to do. Maybe he just wants to stay in Florida. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what they do with him, what his motivations are. If he speaks on it, he's usually not shy to to discuss like things that are going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll find out. We'll find out in the future. But William Regal seemingly on his way back to WWE. That is the second part, of course, of today's main event. That means it is now time for us to discuss everything else that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week. And we do that by moving into our second segment: the good, the bad. And the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Say dude to give you ice and you own some. Shorty. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in the articles that I read. All right. So let's kick things off with Kofi Kingston, who entered Chris the Royal Rumble. 57 days before the event actually begins. He was asked about the SmackDown World Cup final. He started giving an evaluation when Imperium got angry at him. Kofi then challenged a member of the tag team. Those were the people that confronted him, Giovanni Vinci or Ludwig Kaiser. But instead, Gunther stepped into the screen and he accepted the challenge. That surprised Kofi, obviously. So we got Gunther against Kofi in a non-title match. Gunther beat Kofi's ass for three minutes with Imperium like providing some distractions. And I thought, man, they're just going to squash Kofi and I'm going to be really, really upset. Instead, Braun Strowman ran down. He destroyed Vinci and Kaiser. Kingston countered Gunther's powerbomb with an SOS for a near fall. He later hit a frog splash onto his back from a crouched position. Gunther chopped him out of thin air with a German suplex, Boston Crab, falling dropkick, and powerbomb, all following. But it only ended up being a false finish. Gunther then picked up Kofi for like a sidewalk power slam move. It's known as Emerald Flosion to get the win in 12 minutes. Michael Cole explained it's Gunther's new finisher, which he is calling the Last Symphony, which by the way is a great name for a finisher, especially for someone like Gunther. Uh, Braun showing up, you know, after a few minutes, like I said, it legitimately worried me at first the way Kofi was getting beaten and then Braun showing up, but it actually made sense. It even decides... Obviously, he has his own thing going with Gunther. With Xavier Woods not in attendance, Kofi needed him. So it all kind of worked together. But it was a fun match overall, given the size differential between them. It took a lot for Gunther to beat Kingston. And that was good. Kofi's being treated like someone who is a former world champion. I think the match went like 12 or 13 minutes. So they got plenty of time. However, we just recently discussed that one of the best things about Gunther, something that made him special and different from everyone else on the roster, was that he didn't have a singular finisher and he could win a match in a variety of ways. Now that he has Last Symphony, 
they're going to need to establish this over an extended period of time. So you should expect every match to end that way going forward, at least in the near term. That does take a little bit away from what I like so much about Gunther, but it's also nothing that I'm actually going to get upset about, especially because if he's going to have a finisher, well, this is a pretty great one. It has a lot of history in wrestling and it has a legitimate name. So overall, a big W here. Yeah, this is the exact type of win you give to Gunther to continue to build him up as a strong intercontinental champion. He just beat a former world champion. You know, like that matters. And it was a hard fought match. It wasn't a squash. It wasn't thanks to interference necessarily. You know, it was evened up. That That's exactly how you do that to make everybody look good in that situation. And I noticed when he hit the power bomb, I was like, he didn't get all that. Like he he it, it, he didn't get Kofi all the way up. It wasn't a great power bomb. So when Kofi kicks out, I was like, oh, that it, it makes sense there. And then he hits him with the other move. I didn't know what it was. And I'm like, oh, and it, it brought back exactly what you said, which was Gunther can win a match at any time with any move. Did did I, I may have misheard? Did did Cole say like that's his fin? Did he specifically say finishing move, or did he just say like he calls that the? He didn't. I, I don't remember if he said finishing move, but it ended the match and he specific, specifically called out the name. So yeah. he's indicating that as his finisher. If he didn't it say probably, it, it probably will be. But I do prefer that idea of Gunther can win a match at any time because that makes you pay more attention to any time he gets a pin. You know, like we're, we're, we're so conditioned in WWE, a match either ends with a finisher or a roll up, essentially. Uh, the idea that it could or be submission. any, any, yeah. any yeah, or a submission or a, a, that any move can happen at any time. Uh, I like that. So we'll see. But I, I thought this was great. Great setup. Great. Uh, every, everything made sense. Good match. Gunther looks good. Definite good. OK, so since we were talking about the Intercontinental Champion, let's go ahead and talk about the SmackDown World Cup final ricochet against Santos Escobar. Legato del Fantasma led by Escobar. And later, Ricochet, they got extended promo packages. Neither of them said anything that was that notable, but they were both well done. Uh, Cruz del Toro pushed Ricochet off the top rope by his ass early in the match, with Legato getting ejected from ringside because of it. Then Zelina Vega, who was on commentary, she jumped onto the ring apron to argue, and she also got ejected. So we got a true one-on-one match, Ricochet-Escobar. And if that didn't tell you the way it was ending, then I don't know what other uh, clear signal that you could have gotten on who was going to win the match. Escobar hit Ricochet with a shotgun tope suicida, spearing him into the announce table. That was so hard. The noise it made on camera that we could hear from home was just shocking. Uh, Ricochet later hit a running Spanish fly off the apron outside. Ricochet and Escobar each clean jumped onto the barricade with Santos uh, taking him off like with a hurricanrana. FS1 muted the audio for a full 20 seconds while fans chanted, holy shit, coming out of that. They stood on the top rope with Escobar trying a full avalanche hurricanrana, but Ricochet just fully flipped out and landed on his feet. Now, this is a move that Ricochet has done numerous times back in the day, but more recently, Will Ospreay has done it. And seeing like Ricochet come back and be able to do it on the main roster, super cool. Uh, he then hit a double roll through superplex and springboard moonsault for a near fall. Then there was this like clunky dropkick with Escobar just falling out of the corner. And I was like, man, he really didn't sell that well. That looks stupid. But he got his double knees up on an attempted shooting star press. So he was faking the entire time and commentary pointed that out. Ricochet then countered a phantom driver. Escobar came back with a great spike poison Rana. 
Ricochet then hit an avalanche poison Rana and his special 630 finisher for the win in 22 minutes. When he grabbed the World Cup in celebration, there was a ton of pyro that went off behind him on the stage. Then Gunther entered for a stare down to end the show. Chris, holy shit, okay? This match was a banger. The Buffalo crowd popped for the finish. It was otherwise shit for the rest of the entire show, all of SmackDown. Not that it was an incredible episode or anything, but it was way better than the crowd made it seem. But this match was tremendous. Great, great work by both guys. There were a couple odd spots that held me back from a grading standpoint. The work was fantastic. Escobar looked great in defeat. Ricochet got put over with a big win and a big moment. The right people were in the finals. The right guy won the match. Also, Wade Barrett was terrific selling Ricochet's win. He really put him over. When we talked about Santos Escobar making the move from NXT to the main roster, and we even years ago, when we talked about Ricochet moving from NXT to the main roster, it was matches like this and moments like this that got us so excited about the potential. And for them to deliver in this way, it really showed exactly what they can do. It showed what WWE has in them. And it really pinpointed pretty much why the future is bright on SmackDown and on WWE. If they have guys like this and figure out ways to utilize them, the crowd is always going to love someone like Ricochet because of the flips and the moves and just the spectacularness, if that's even a word, of what he's able to do inside the squared circle between the ropes, up and over the ropes, all of that. Escobar doesn't have that exact same ability as Ricochet, but he's a great storyteller in the ring. He's a fantastic wrestler, and he's an awesome foil for a great babyface. We saw all of that in this match. I went 4.25 stars and an A. If this had been on a pay-per-view uninterrupted, if there was a better crowd, you're talking about a 4.5 star match, maybe even slightly higher. One of the best television matches of the year in WWE. Absolutely fantastic. I don't have any more superlatives to give it. It was, oh, I have one. Good, because I didn't say that. This was good. Yeah, absolute good. Tremendous match. This is, again, the exact type of situation where you can have Santos Escobar take a loss and he looks better for it. Like, just let these guys show out and that's what they'll do. I also liked the, um, the, the, the I guess, backstage, whatever, vignette promo, whatever they did mm-hmm. with the whole, I got it off the back there, talking about you're doing this for Mexican wrestlers and stuff like that. Just more of that backstory. More more of that um, uh, just sense of power, even even if he loses, like he's still got a lot going on. So that was awesome. Match was great. Like you said, Ricochet is awesome. Glad to see he's the guy who gets this. The pyro, big shout out to the pyro at the end. I mean, like they made it feel like a big deal at the end when he won it. We mm-hmm. didn't really know what to expect going in. It wasn't just, oh, the winner gets an Intercontinental Championship match. By the end, when you saw that, like, all right, the World Cup means something. And, and it feels like, you know, this could, this could have been King of the Ring. They could have done the exact same thing, could have mm-hmm. done King of the Ring. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's exactly how you'd like it to play out, how you'd like it to end, and you move forward from there. So um, World Cup tied into the Fox World Cup obviously makes sense and everything. But that's the exact type of thing you want to get out of a tournament, and especially a tournament final. So... Uh, I, I think that's that's a good, absolute uh, good segment. That's a great point by you, which is this could have been King of the Ring and it would have worked just as well in terms of like, this is what you want out of a tournament like this. You want good matches. You want sensible people in the final, the right winner, 
and a huge moment celebration at the end. And in this case, obviously, it leads into an intercontinental championship match. Now, we have no designs on Ricochet beating Gunther for the title. There's no way, in fact, that that happens. But I already know Ricochet's a great wrestler. I already know Gunther's a great wrestler. And if I didn't, guess what, Chris? On this episode, I got to be told that. If I was a first-time viewer and I saw Gunther beat the shit out of Kofi Kingston and I saw Ricochet beat Santos Escobar in two banger matches, granted the main event much more of a banger than Gunther and Kofi, even though that was a very good, that was probably like a 3.5-star match on his own. I didn't grade it, but it was probably up there. So now you see, okay, you have this guy against this guy and they're going to fight together. Holy shit, I can't wait to watch that. And that's exactly what wrestling booking needs to be. We get away from that so frequently, or we had in the past in WWE, even in AEW, they really get away from stuff like that. This was just so freaking simple. It was well executed, clearly a unanimous good for Ricochet and Santos Escobar, and really the World Cup as a total, right? Good for the World Cup. Yes, absolutely. And in Ricochet versus Gunther, like they built that story back up. Yeah, and they, right. they, they 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 gave you a reason now to believe in Ricochet going into that. And that's and exactly what this Ricochet this got a reason be. to get another match after losing mm-hmm. clean to him. There's now a reason he won a tournament. He won his way into that opportunity. We're going to talk about the exact opposite happening in a moment on Raw. So let's move to Raw. We'll stay with the mid-card title situation. Seth Rollins versus Bobby Lashley for a United States Championship number one contendership was announced for next week. So this week they built to it. Rollins entered looking more fricking than last week. He looked like he just got out of the shower. His hair was just all the way slicked back. Rollins announced the match. Lashley came in. He looked completely dapper. He still got cheers and chants from the crowd, by the way, and he played to the crowd. So he's not full heel. Uh, Rollins tried to get under his skin, saying Lashley was jealous of Brock Lesnar when Lashley grabbed his jacket. Rollins went back at it, so Lashley punched him. And then they brawled with three different separations. When Lashley went at him the last time, Rollins moved out of the way and Lashley uh, totally speared Petey Williams, who is now a producer, former TNA wrestler, um, little Papa Pump, uh, you know, big Papa Pump's a guy. If you ever have seen the um, Steiner math promo that's so famous, he's the smaller guy dressed like big Papa Pump in that promo. Nevertheless, Petey Williams oh. ate a spear uh, from um, from Bobby Lashley. And then later backstage, Adam Pierce approached Lashley saying he knows Lashley didn't do it on purpose. He knows it was an accident. But if Lashley has another accident, then his hands will be tied. I thought this was extremely well done, both in the ring and backstage. The Lashley-Pierce deal was particularly good, and it likely sets up my expectation is a suspension next week that holds Lashley off of television for a while until he gets a returning Lesnar either in the Royal Rumble match, which, as I've said, would be how I book it, or at the Royal Rumble show itself. Otherwise, there wasn't really much point to doing it this way. It's interesting, by the way, that the double turn resulted in both of these guys being tweeners instead of one being a pure baby face and one being a pure heel. Rollins got cheered up until Lashley showed up. Then Rollins started being an asshole that showed his tweener side. Lashley no longer got a huge pop as a pure baby face, but he still had plenty of fans cheering for him. And then backstage with Pierce, he was kind of being a little heelish on the tweener side. I'm not sure if this was the plan or the double turn failed, but it's certainly interesting. Either way, I thought this was good. I got to say, if we're taking Lashley and Riddle off of TV after McIntyre's hurt, Roman's not there, we're, we're suddenly we're suddenly going to be down a lot of star power. They got enough people, but though. You, but you're right. It does set up like, hey, give, give him a break until Lesnar comes back and you have something to do with him. It's kind of the nature of what they set up. 
and yeah, I just it, it's been a weird few weeks for Lashley with the turn double turn kind of not fans wanting to cheer him anyway. I'm I'm fine if you take him off for a little bit to kind of just get a reset going because it's it's been kind of a back and forth few weeks. So th- this was good, and then I'm I think we know where it's going to get to. We just got you know four months still to get there. So are you suggesting by saying four months, you're suggesting WrestleMania? I guess. I mean, do we think we'll do it at the Rumble? I mean, I think this is setting up for something at the Royal Rumble. I, I think this is setting up, again, if I was, I can only tell you what I, what I would do if I was booking, but if mm-hmm. I was booking, I would have one of them, Lashley or Lesnar, in the Royal Rumble match, doing well, clearing things out, kicking ass. All of a sudden, it starts getting a little full. The other one shows up. They eliminate each other, like bear hug each other over the ropes. Mm. So both of them get eliminated from the Rumble. And then that kind of continues their feud to lead into a WrestleMania match. That is how I would book it. Another way to book it, given we have so much time before the Royal Rumble, is like right after the start of the new year, Brock Lesnar shows up on Raw and he's like, I'm looking for a challenger. or I'm going to enter the Royal Rumble. And instead of that happening, Bobby Lashley comes out. You do like the Triple H Undertaker back-to-back return situation. And then you have Lashley come out, they confront each other, they beat the shit out of each other, and then they get a signature match at the Royal Rumble that is obviously not the Rumble match. So you do Hell in a Cell or you know whatever the hell you want with those two guys, Last Man Standing, even though you guys know I hate that rule. False Count Anywhere maybe would be my preference. Um, but that that's how I would book it, one of those two ways. So I don't know that it's going to happen at WrestleMania, but does it make sense for Brock Lesnar, Bobby Lashley, the final match between them to happen at WrestleMania? It absolutely does. Yes, I, I, I think that's an absolute WrestleMania match you can do. So, yeah, we'll see. So, Chris, the next segment that we're going to talk about also involves the United States Championship. And I couldn't help but think as I was watching Raw, and this is what I mentioned off the top of the show, this just screamed to me like this is a feud over the wrong thing. This is what the world title feud would be on Raw right now, except they don't have a world champion. And the United States Championship that they are feuding over as for a number one contendership, already has two other people who are contending for it. This episode of Raw to me, my point is, it made the absence of a world champion and a world championship more apparent than most weeks. Yeah, and that's the reality we've known for a while without with one champion who's not ever on Raw, that you're basically forced to elevate the US title to that spot, which I don't hate. I mean, I, I like that the mid-card titles it's great mean that it's something that they're, yeah. that they're going to be prominently featured, that you have big names, Rollins, Lashley, going after it. That That's how you do that. Um, so it's like, it is weird, but I, I don't hate it because I like the United States Championship meaning something. Honestly, I think if it was reversed, if this was the Intercontinental Championship, it might mean a bit more, just because that has more WWE history. Mm-hmm. But I, I I still appreciate the effort they're putting into this, even though it's a situation that we know that we've said that they put themselves in. Right. It's like you you have to focus the feud around something. So they're just focusing two different feuds on the exact same thing, as opposed to kind of, you know, having that world title there where you can have a differentiation and you can have a feud over the title and you can create a number one contender. Instead, they're kind of Mixing it all in one bag, I guess, is what I'm trying to point out. So let's go ahead and talk about what else happened with the United States Championship. So backstage, Austin Theory said Rollins and Lashley were basically fighting over scraps because he and WWE have moved past them. He said, quote, forever is just the beginning. 
before bumping into Mustafa Ali. He said Ali whines and complains about opportunities, but just gets beaten down when he actually gets them. Ali said, unlike Theory, he has to fight for everything that he gets, and he won't quit until he is the United States champion. So Theory said, screw it, let's just fight. He challenged him. He said, if I win, I never want to hear you talk about getting an opportunity again once I retain the title. So we did get the match. Theory against Ali. Theory threw Ali into the post and barricade. They went for a super inventive move off the ropes, but someone botched it and they both fell in a really nasty spot. Ali called an audible for a satellite DDT and that worked as a replacement move. Theory put Ali in a tree of woe and beat on him. Suddenly out of nowhere, Dolph Ziggler runs in. He super kicks Theory's head off and gets a really delayed disqualification. Ali screamed at Ziggler. So thankfully they had the babyface upset at the guy and Theory then attacked them both from behind as they argued. Theory threw Ali through the ropes into the post and hit A-Town down on Ziggler to end the entire thing. This is probably the most mixed between good and bad I've been on a segment in quite some time. The confrontation was solid, but what's weird is Ali cut a two-minute promo on Twitter that contained all of the character development and reasoning that we've been wanting from him on television so that fans actually have a reason to cheer for him and get behind him. Except WWE, not only did they not air the two-minute promo, they didn't even air a clip from it on Raw. I thought that was a huge missed opportunity. And then the crowd finally seems to actually give a little bit of a shit about Ali in the end of that match. They started like cheering for him a little bit and, and rousing when he was getting beaten and then coming up from under, only for Ziggler to run into the ring and like ruin the moment and take the air out of Ali's sails. You can't have Ali lose or look like a nerd every single week and expect him to get over. Why is every match he's in about the United States Championship? Why not have him get some low or mid-card wins in the in-between weeks where he's not involved in this to actually build up his profile instead of just have him complain over and over again? He really comes off like a whiny bitch as opposed to someone who's fighting, scrapping, and clawing to get what they want, which is the storyline they're trying to tell. If the guy is scrapping, clawing, and fighting, guess what I want to see? I want to see him scrap, claw, and fight. He's actually doing the exact opposite of what the storyline suggests. Just because he's not giving up doesn't mean that he's actually fighting for the thing that he wants. He's basically trying to take the easy road, which is what he accused Austin Theory of doing by just challenging people. So I'm confused by the booking. They have a number one contendership to determine Theory's next challenger, yet you're not only just giving Ali a shot, which he didn't need to qualify for in kayfabe, you're also bringing back Ziggler and putting him in the mix as well. If Elimination Chamber was coming up in three, four, five weeks, it would make sense. Boom, you have five challengers for the title, you throw everyone in the Elimination Chamber, you're good to go. But that's three months away. So don't get me wrong, this wasn't awful television or anything like that, but the lack of character building for Ali and the logic or lack of logic, in my opinion, behind the entire thing, it makes me lean bad instead of good. And don't get me wrong when I say that, the future triple threat, Ali, Theory, Ziggler, that's probably going to be a banger. But in terms of what we got Monday night, I'm going to lean bad on this one. I'm definitely going bad with this. I mean, Dolph Ziggler ruins the Ali segment. Like, <laughs> no no one was excited for that. No, no one cared to see that. And to your point about Ali, you're right. This is what we've been saying for weeks. So, like, He's got to win some matches so people can believe in him. He had to win a couple weeks ago or something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's good to see him like celebrating a victory. That's how you get people behind him. Instead, every single week he's complaining 
that somebody cost him a shot at something. And he's not wrong, but at some point, like that doesn't build uh, empathy for him because there's nothing else for him to stand on other than just the, we're just getting annoyed by the whole thing. So yeah, that's incredibly annoying. I did not see his promo uh, on Twitter or social media before that. So I, I did. I it, it was basically that, the same as all the other ones he's ever done. You know, he will t- tell a story about being a Muslim in America it, and being a Chicago cop yeah. and how that faces adversity. And I'm not downplaying those things. Those are legit, but he's, he's said the same thing numerous times. So yeah. it was good. But if they took like a 25 second snippet or 30 second snippet and aired that in the arena before he made his entrance, then all of a sudden you're giving the crowd a reason to cheer for the guy besides the fact that he's going up against theory. And I think they're just missing that part. They're just, and they did this with Candice LeRae. I've been complaining about it. They finally gave fans a reason to like her, you know, tonight, or I should say Monday night. Um, they, they're still not doing it for Ali and it's frustrating. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. His whole career has kind of been defined by starts and stops, starts and stops. And now we're getting that playing out all in an entire, Live. in just one match, in yeah. just one match, we're getting the start and the stop just in single matches. Just, very frustrating. I'm, I'm giving this a bad. All right. Uh, Damage Control entered SmackDown with Bailey saying they were on Friday night to boost the ratings and no one in the locker room can step up to them, which is the reason why no one in the locker room stepped up to join their opponents in war games. Liv Morgan came out to counter their comments and she purposely chose to fight one on three. She just ran in and attacked them. Liv took out Dakota Kai and Io Sky at ringside before getting some shots on Bailey. When she got overwhelmed, Tegan Knox ran down, making a surprise return to WWE for the save. When Knox got beaten down, Morgan grabbed the kendo stick and literally slapped, uh, I said, I was going to say slap, snapped it across Bailey's stomach. One swing snapped the kendo stick. That had to hurt. Then she cleared the ring with Tegan hitting her shiniest wizard to end the entire thing. There was really no rhyme or reason for the first part of the segment. Bailey just ranting, like just to rant. It was aimless, but I continue to love the way Liv is being presented. And yes, it is stupid for a baby face to attack one on three. But if there's a baby face in the women's division right now who's going to do that, it's who gives a shit about pain? You know, I'll risk it all. Liv Morgan. That's her gimmick right now. Just throw its caution to the wind and go attack people and and take crazy moves and do all that. So it fits within her character. So I did appreciate that. And I do love the way that Liv is being presented. But there's no way I'm going to evaluate a segment that includes the return of Tegan Knox and give it anything other than a good. I'm extremely excited for her to be back in WWE. To what I noted when she ran down, guess what? No leg brace on either of her knees. That means either she's completely rehabbed them or she now only needs to wear it for wrestling segments, which is what Steve Austin used to do. And he obviously had a long career still after all of that happened to him. I'm extremely excited for her to be back, as I already said. Super talent, pure white meat baby face. And I think I called this when Michael Cole mentioned her name during the entrances at War Games. My only regret is when I interviewed Dakota Kai, we had a really nice interview um, and you should listen to it back on the feed from last week. Please, if you haven't already, listen to my interview with Dakota Kai. But I ran out of time. And one of the questions I had to cut was, have you spoken to Tegan Knox recently? What do you think (laughs) her situation is? Do you think she might return to wrestling soon? And now that Triple H brought you back, would you like, you know, do you think there's a chance for her to come back into WWE. I had to cut that question from the interview. And then a couple of days later, Tegan Knox shows up on SmackDown. I will say this was another return, Chris, that likely should have been built up through vignettes instead of just being a surprise save. It seems like 
WWE is almost exclusively using this one device where either someone someone's entrance music hits or there's some beatdown and someone comes out to make a save and that's their return. It is not the blanket answer for everyone you want to return or debut on the main roster, especially given there was no backstage follow-up later in the show for Tegan to cut a promo, maybe even alongside Liv Morgan about why she's back and so on and so forth. I'm sure we're going to get that next week on SmackDown. There either should have been follow-up or at least a couple weeks of vignettes to kind of lead into this to tell fans who this is and why she's back. She had a very, very short tenure on SmackDown before being fired by WWE. So it's it's good. I'm very excited she's there. I kind of even like her teaming up with Liv Morgan. It's a good team potentially to go against damage control. Could it have been done slightly better? Could they maybe have done her return differently? Yes, but I'm still very positive about the entire thing. I don't even remember her uh, previous time on SmackDown. She came up I with know, she came up with Shotzi. They did like knocks I know, and shots. I know the, tag team. That's right. I, I know the name from NXT. I didn't watch it very much, so I kind of just had no reaction to uh, to her coming back, just because I'm not familiar. That's with fair. Her. It's just yeah. the nature of kind of where I'm at, and I'm, I'm sure they'll tell us that story more over the last over the next few weeks or whatever. So good, good to be good to be back. Good to have someone back. Uh, healthy back wrestling and doing everything. So I just kind of didn't have any reaction to it just because I'm not familiar with her. I just know she's kind of involved with Dakota Kai something. That's all. That's all where I'm at. That makes total sense. Uh, Now on Raw, they did a number one contender tournament with two triple threat semifinals that happened this past week on Raw and then a number one contendership that's going to be held next week to determine Bianca Belair's opponent. So the first match was Bailey, Asuka, and Rhea Ripley. Backstage, Ripley was with Judgment Day saying Bailey and Asuka are great, but neither of them are her. She promised to run through the division and get called mommy. After Bailey entered, Becky Lynch walked through the crowds, a loud chance, saying it's been three years since they last fought. Becky said Bailey was great during the Thunderdome and no one cheered, so Bailey demanded it. And then, of course, she got booed. Bailey said they differ because Becky is all about the spotlight and adulation, while Bailey actually cares about the other wrestlers and the future of WWE. She again egged on booze as fans chanted for Becky. Becky said Bailey said that uh, she has helped damage control, but while they've been successful, Io Sky and Dakota Kai, Bailey herself has been a loser. As Lynch walked up the ramp, Ripley entered for the match, and they did a delayed stare down and a really long face to face, like. The one of the longest face to faces I can remember ever seeing in wrestling. What a tease this yeah. was. Okay, I've been trying to figure out how the women would be booked from now until WrestleMania, and there's just so many awesome options. It does feel weird that Becky Bailey is being built and Becky Ripley is being teased with two months until the next major show. Both of those are matches that should be on a pay per view, not necessarily just a Raw. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting big matches on TV, as I mentioned earlier. But both of those feel massive, not just big, but massive. I popped huge for this extended segment, the stare down. Not only was it one of the longest I can remember in wrestling, it's one of the most excited I've been watching two people stare themselves, stare each other down. Like there's not much to it. You're just looking at someone else occasionally jawing a little bit, but they even did the thing where like they changed sides because Ripley had to make her way to the ring. I think a referee approached them at one point to try to like break it up without getting fully in the middle of it. It went on way longer than I expected, but I was staring at the TV. I was like, wow, this is great. I can't wait to see this match. It was such a great build for something without actually doing anything. It was exceptional. And the whole segment, this whole, you know, preamble, I guess, to the match itself was good. 
I loved it. I just thought it went on for too long. I like they were there for like 45 seconds. I was like, I I, like I got it doesn't have to be I don't it doesn't have to be like passing each other and staring. But it was like pass, stare, get a little bit close. And then you kind of back up. It just it seemed like it, it was almost too telegraphed, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I love when they do the stuff where someone is entering for the next match and someone's leaving like all I any stared on in those situations are great because it teases something that they, it could be saying, Hey, this is coming. Or it could be saying, Hey, they're just two people who crossed each other in the hallway at work essentially. And, 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 and who knows where it goes from there. So Ripley, Bianca, Ripley, Becky, it's a reminder that we really haven't gotten Ripley Belair Rhea, too. Ripley. They had the we backstage got, stared yeah, down. Don't forget. We haven't gotten Rhea versus like a lot of the big names mm-hmm. on the roster yet. She did Charlotte at WrestleMania and she did Oscar at WrestleMania, but we haven't really had her interact with the others very much, especially now with she's this new character where she's incredibly over and kind of at her new peak on the main roster. So, yeah, that's something I'm absolutely excited for. She really has, again, become the breakout star of Judgment Day. Her and Dominic are really just the, the, the heat they have is so good, but she feels like the star of the group. And that's awesome. She is. She is absolutely the star of Judgment Day. And I think they're doing a great job also just building a ton of contenders, probably for an Elimination Chamber match with Bianca Belair. It makes a lot more sense to do it for the Raw Women's title than it does for the SmackDown one, just given the depth of the roster, the talent on the roster. So you have that match now that can, I mean, just think, consider this, okay? Bianca Belair coming in as champion. Becky Lynch, Bailey, Rhea Ripley, Asuka, and one other woman. I mean, that's an all-time women's elimination chamber match. Alexa Bliss, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just fantastic. So really excited about that. Let's get to this triple threat match that we talked about again. Uh, Bailey, Oscar, Ripley. Oscar slipped trying to jump off Bailey's back to kick Ripley. That was unfortunate. Oscar caught the others fighting with a double flying code breaker. She hit Bailey with a missile dropkick into an Oscar lock. Ripley broke it with a running dropkick. Asuka then turned Rhea in an armbar, but Bailey broke it with an elbow drop and a Bailey to belly. Ripley hit Bailey with a Northern Lights suplex bridge. Ripley then face planted Asuka off her shoulders, but she missed a running cannonball where she jumped off the steel steps. Asuka countered Bailey to belly and landed a ton of strikes, but Bailey avoided a missile dropkick and hit Rose Plant to get the win in 15 minutes. Ripley was furious outside and she attacked Asuka after the bell with Riptide. Then she talked trash in Asuka's face and slapped her. There were a lot of good sequences here. The crowd was really, really disappointing for this match. It never got into it, which was a shame because the work was exceptional. Uh, Based on my expectation for the second match, I thought the right person won the first match. You tease Bailey fighting Belair again, only for the other person to actually take the final. It's too soon for Ripley to fight Belair. Asuka isn't in position, I'm sorry, to go after her now. And this probably set up a little mini feud with Ripley and Asuka, where Ripley can probably beat Asuka, kind of put a finality onto that, and then continue elevating herself. I know people who love Asuka, and I am one of those. I love Asuka. I want her to be the undefeated badass champion who never loses. I, I We all want this, okay? She's not in that zone right now, and I don't think she's in that part of her career either. It would be great if at some point she got that kind of run, but that's not where she is. She is in a position right now where she can lose matches and put over big time talent that's upcoming, kind of like an AJ Styles or some other people. And she's doing that. So you have to thank her and be appreciative that she's willing to do stuff like this. 
her losing for ba- for Bailey, you know, that doesn't really fall into what I'm talking about, but her potentially feuding with Ripley and Ripley beating her, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I thought the right person won. I love this match. I actually did great at 3.75 stars, B plus, way, way, way better than the crowd gave it credit for. Yeah, it, it was good. Right person won. They set it up with the way that shows, uh, uh, with the way the segment started with Becky and, and Bailey and everything. And yeah, look, if, if we're going to keep treating Bailey as a formidable opponent, as she's lost a lot, you got to give her some wins. And and this was this was the spot to give her a win and to set up the number one contender match with the next match we get to. Right. So Belair backstage called Bailey's win impressive. She said she knows how to handle her, though, so she's not worried. She also said Ripley should have handled the loss more gracefully and not taken it out on Asuka. So she's kind of tweaking Rhea there. Uh, Bianca then put over all the challengers in the second triple threat, and it was a pretty solid interview. So we'll get to that match. Becky Lynch, Alexa Bliss, and Nikki Cross. While Bliss warmed up backstage, the Bray Wyatt logo again flashed on a TV behind her. Lily was back with Bliss for the main event. Bliss teased Sister Abigail early, which was interesting. Cross hit her swinging neckbreaker on Bliss outside. The crowd was literally silent, by the way, for this entire match. It felt like it was taking place in the Thunderdome. That's literally how bad the crowd was. Lynch got under Cross on the ropes for a superplex bomb. Cross had Bliss draped for her finisher when Lynch jumped off the ropes to combine it with a double leg drop. Becky hit Nikki with an awkward manhandle slam on the apron, but Cross kept rolling away from her in the ring so she couldn't get the cover. That allowed an opportunity for Sky and Kai to run down and stop Lynch from getting the pin, beating her two on one, and then doing a double powerbomb of her through the announce table. That gave Bliss an opening to hit Twisted Bliss on Cross for the win and an okay pop, I would say, from fans at the bell. Now, I would complain about that booking given Ripley was just fine not factoring into the finish in her match, but they completely set this up. First, with the three-on-one attack last week, then with the Becky Bailey segment earlier on Raw itself, it made all the sense in the world that then, of course, Dakota Kai and Eosky are going to do her bidding. Bliss, I mentioned this earlier, I said Bailey was the right person to win the first match because I assumed someone would win the second match. And Bliss was that person. I thought she would win it from the jump. I assume Lynch will distract Bailey next week, help Bliss win. And then Bliss ends up fighting Bianca Belair, babyface, babyface. And that is an opportunity for a character turn or a heel turn or something like that to happen when you see all the Bray Wyatt imagery and all that type of stuff. So it's really tough to grade a match like this when the crowd is just out of it for 95% of the time they're in the ring. There was no energy whatsoever, but... I didn't think it was the fault of the women. They weren't as good as the first match. It wasn't even close to as good as the first match, but the talent in the first match was better too. So this definitely made sense to set up Bel Air Bliss with the Wyatt term and also set up Becky Bailey. So I'm going good here. Yeah, I give it a light good. It, it was fine. Mostly just with Bliss winning, it's like, all right, she's, and maybe we'll repeat this when she if she gets the number one contender spot, but it's like, all right, she's kind of in this spot here now where she may be contending for the title. They may finally be doing something actually real with Alexa Bliss for the first time since she came back. Still just haven't connected to what she's doing solely at the fault of the booking, but I'm interested for her to be in the spot. I'm interested with the Bray Wyatt stuff continuing in the background. It feels like something is going to come. So I'm on, I'm on board with that. I'll give it a light good. The crowd, like you said, really kind of just takes you out of this when I thought the women put in some good work. And I like that. I, I like the setup. I like, hey, two triple threats, winners face. Like, 
they've been doing tournaments. They've been doing number one contender stuff. They've been giving more stakes to matches, and I've appreciated that. You're right. This is the first time since Alexa Bliss has come back, and, and it was a long time ago now at this point. This it is really the first was. time where it actually feels like there's a purposeful storyline for her, and that's a huge positive on top of everything else that you said. So let's go back over to SmackDown. Bray Wyatt said, we are spoiled by society, forgetting that we're actually animals forcing ourselves to fit in. Wyatt said he did not hurt LA Knight, but he heard how fans rejoiced that LA Knight got hurt. Then he said, if he had attacked Knight, we would know because nothing would have been left of him. Then there later was an Uncle Howdy video that said, do you know the man who lives next door? How well do you know your neighbor? Why can't you all see? I know what he thinks. I know how he feels. It's all fiction. Trust me, revel in what you are. That's all we got this week. And look, it didn't move either the storyline forward, the character forward, or the feud forward. So because of that, it's a default bad for me at this point. Again, I'm not saying I don't like it, but it almost feels like they're purposely dragging out a return match, maybe even for the Royal Rumble. Well, guess what? That's two months away. And dragging is the right word for this over the last two weeks. It's like they take two steps forward and then they take two steps back. Now, all that said, this was actually one of the most cohesive promos. And I don't know why my voice went up there when I said cohesive, but it was one of the most cohesive promos. Uh, He's cut since returning and it made complete sense in terms of the character. It just didn't really get me excited. So that's the reason I went with that. Yeah, this was bad. This was boring. The most interesting thing Bray Wyatt has done since he came back has had that face-to-face with LA Knight. Loved it. After that, back to just backstage rambling. Yeah, it made kind of sense, but where are we going here? It's He showed up two pay-per-views ago, and the only thing that has advanced is he had that one moment with LA Knight. I would like to see them do more. I liked, I liked them together. I liked what LA Knight did. <laughs> Instead, we're just... Nothing. It's nothing. This is bad. There's nothing more to say about it. All right. Uh, Karrion Cross got a promo vignette talking about the universe being chaotic and random, and those who struggle against accepting that ultimately fail. He said he's already taught this to Drew McIntyre and Madcap Moss when Scarlet revealed a tarot card with Rey Mysterio's image on it. I actually thought this was extremely captivating, at least for me. Like, the only problem I had is we just saw Rey last week in an ankle cast being beaten by his son with a broomstick at Thanksgiving. So when exactly is this going to happen? Why why is he calling out Rey Mysterio, who's not on TV, hasn't done anything to him, and is injured, at least in kayfabe, right? So I think it was good. Don't get me wrong. Again, I thought it was really captivating. The imagery of Cross and Scarlet together with tarot cards, the whole deal. I really liked it, but it was an odd choice of, you know, Rey Mysterio when he's not on television right now. Yeah, and the other thing is, like, with Bray back, these two are kind of doing similar things in different ways, but I do think Cross and Scarlet are doing it in a more interesting way, actually. So it it was a bit better. Rey Mysterio, sure. All right, I guess we'll see where it goes. It was surprising, but they're back. It does feel like they should be separate on different shows. Cross yes, and very much so. Yeah. Very much the same spooky crypto. Well, not the same, but similar enough where it would be nice if one was on a different show to provide, right. provide yeah. some air. Otherwise, you're getting yes. them pretty close together. And, and yeah, it is a little weird. So let's let's move back to Raw with um, this really extended 
JBL Poker Invitational that, that really took up a large portion of the show because it actually led to numerous other things and was involved in numerous other things that happened. So first, we learned that there's a JBL Poker Invitational, and the people involved are Baron Corbin, the OC, with Luke Gallows playing, Alpha Academy with Otis, I'm sorry, with Chad Gable playing, uh, Akira Tozawa, Shelton Benjamin, Dana Brooke, Dominic Mysterio, who seemed out of place at first, and Tamina. JBL said it was a 10K, then 20K, and then he said it was a 50K buy, and he just kept changing it. I think he forgot the amount that they were going with. Anyway, Dexter Loomis walked in with a Louis Vuitton. JBL said he wasn't invited, so Loomis dumped out the Miz's money on the table, and of course, JBL let him in. So we come back to this. Corbin thinks Loomis is bluffing, and he calls with a straight. Loomis flips over a full house. Corbin called him a cheater. So Loomis took a huge like machete out of nowhere and just dropped it on the table. And then on the other table, there were two tables going on simultaneously. Tazawa won a pot. Dom tried to steal some of his money. So they got into it. JBL forced them out saying there's no fighting you know, in the poker invitational. And they decided to fight in the ring with Dom stealing some money on his way out. Later, Miz told JBL he was surprised that he wasn't invited. JBL said it was just an oversight and Miz could enter as long as he had $50,000. So, okay, it was $50,000. That's that's the number. Miz said he wasn't liquid right now, so he offered his Rolex as collateral. JBL looked at it. He realized very clearly and quickly it was fake. So Miz walked off ashamed. Corbin later claimed a pot when the OC saw cards fall out of his sleeve. Alpha Academy got Corbin's back and that led to a six-man challenge. And then since everyone left, Johnny Gargano assumed Loomis just won, and they cleaned up all the money and dumped it into his Louie and left. I thought this was the best usage of JBL since his return. Loomis played his part perfectly. Other than that, I mean, it's a low-card, time-wasting bunch of segments. It gave purpose and reason for two match bookings on the show that otherwise would not have made any sense. And because of that, I thought it succeeded in its charge, which was building two matches and moving forward the Dexter Loomis, Miz, Johnny Gargano storyline. I didn't find anything wrong with it. This is normally something where it would be an automatic bad for me, but it's actually not. I went with good. I was relatively entertained by the entire thing. No, yeah, I was going to give it a good too. It was a story oh, that okay. they told throughout the show. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah, it was low card, surpri- whatever. I thought like, you were going to say, "How could you give this good?" Okay, sorry. No, yeah. it, it was it, it was something that built throughout the show. It was more entertaining than some of the previous ones, and it involved a lot of people doing different things. Like in in, in the Miz segment to kind of cap it all off, basically that he doesn't have the money to do this now was was just enough. Like a lot of things happened in this. And I appreciated the effort it took to it, it was one of the things, like you said, it was not an eventful episode of Raw, but this was something they kept coming back to and it kept grabbing my interest. I was like, all right, I like what's the latest going on here? Like I liked they don't often give us um, th- things that evolve throughout the show unless it's bloodline. It's like the only thing. Mm-hmm. So oh, this was oh, low stakes, ultimately not that big of a deal, but. I, I very much enjoyed it. It was also a really creative usage of the Dexter Loomis character. You know, the guy doesn't speak, so you have to find ways in which you can utilize him. And the machete gimmick, it's from NXT. It's st- stuff he did all the time. And it's always so funny that Johnny Gargano just like, it's, it's normal for him. He's used to it, right? So he's unfazed by it. Everyone else is like, why the hell did this guy just drop a machete on the table? He's a serial killer. It just works. And it, it all kind of continues this gimmick and storyline that many of us know and those who don't are now learning about it for the first time. And I thought that was positive. Speaking of which, so Candice LeRae was backstage and she learned 
Because she beat Dakota Kai last week, she has to fight Io Sky next week. And I'm pausing when I say that. Why does she have to fight Io? Because she beat Dakota. Like, it's okay if she wants to, or if Damage Control made the challenge because they were angry that she beat Dakota. Now, we said last week that it would have made sense for Candace to try and go through them all individually. But I don't know why she has to fight Io because she beat Dakota. That just didn't make a shred of sense the way that was presented. But I do digress. Uh, Lorray said she has a lot to fight for as a new mom, and she won't let anyone push her around. Organo and Loomis then walked up to her really, really excited, and they showed her the Louie, and they opened it up with all their poker winnings, all the money inside. So Lorray was just like, I'm done with this interview. We need to go shop. We got to go spend this money. Now, ignoring the criticisms I already made, which could probably be explained by Byron Saxton just screwing up the announcement, it's very possible he just messed up. It was nice that Lorraine finally got to express herself and share her motivations. This is what I've been talking about wanting from her since she initially debuted, but especially since she came back. Last week, or maybe two weeks ago, whenever it was, last week, I think, she basically said, you know, here's what the deal is, and I'm going to go fight Dakota Kai, but she never told the deal. She never actually gave us that nugget. Now we actually got it. She's a new mom. She's not going to get pushed around. She's fighting for her family, and she wants to prove herself in this division. Now we have a reason to actually cheer for her. On top of that, interacting with Gargano and Loomis, it's really making me think they might actually call up Indy Hartwell and do the way on the main roster. That's a faction from NXT that involved Austin Theory. Indy Hartwell and Austin Theory were kind of siblings kind of in it. Loomis became the love interest of Indy. They got married and then... NXT transitioned to 2.0, people got called up, Gargano's contract expired, so on and so forth. The whole thing fell apart, basically. So what I'm thinking is they may actually do the way on the main roster with Loomis in for Theory, given Theory is completely separate from it. Lorraine and Hartwell could then challenge for the women's tag team titles. Candice already has her feud with Damage Control, the champions. All of that makes sense, and that would be damn good. By the way, you can quote me on this. Candice and EO next week is going to be an unmitigated banger. There will be no argument unless they do some bullshit shenanigans with a crap finish. That match will be either the best match on Raw next week or one of the best matches on Raw next week. Yes, it was good to get the explanation from Candice LeRae. She's someone who came in and they kind of were like, oh, she's Johnny Gargano's wife. And then she disappeared because she, she got, you know, kayfabe injured and then she's back and it's like all right like what are we wrapping our arms around here and 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 they gave us that so that was a good step you're right has to, she's still doing this stuff with damage control don't really know why they're kind of just i i think some of this there's a little too much wrestling for wrestling sake and i'd like a little bit more on that but this was good the match is going to be good next week and a, a step forward. I, I give it a light good. Like, I didn't think it was amazing or anything, but it's a step forward for Candace. Yeah, my good's more for the potential of the way showing up. So I'm preemptively giving it a good, actually. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 I saw the wedding episode of NXT. That was one of the, you know, I watched that last episode. So I'm like familiar with it. But if like they bring Indy Hartwell and they kind of do the way, there's a lot they're going to have to explain with vignettes and explanations because just a lot of that. Uh, you know, I don't know. Audience, it, it's not going to be. It's not going to be the same incarnations. Like, I think they can very easily explain their husband and wife and that 
like Candace puts her arm around her. She takes her under her wing. It's very easy to kind of bring that back. If they do do the way or, or a different, a similar group with a different name, they can kind of make it their own thing. I don't know that it's going to be that difficult to figure out. It's more just the idea of all of them being together and being on the show and really Candace and Indy being a tag team because there'd be a fantastic tag team together. So that's what I'm more excited about than anything else. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right. So let's move to the two matches that came out of JBL's Poker Invitational. The first was the OC against Corbin and Alpha Academy. Otis leveled Styles when he flipped over the ropes outside and AJ got singled out for a really long time in this match. He even ate a deep six. Chad Gable had a nice run with Carl Anderson. Styles caught Corbin sliding back into the ring with a sliding forearm. Otis had a massive release suplex on Luke Gallows, which was a crazy spot. Styles caught Otis with a phenomenal forearm. Gable had a full release suplex on Styles. Gallows then saved Anderson from the rolling German suplex from Gable. He countered into Magic Killer for the win. So I really did not give a shit about this match. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a switch flipped. And they put together an exceptional six-man finish. It was really great. I also love that Mia Yim is still with the OC and doing too sweet. Like she's she's a full-fledged member of the OC, even though the Judgment Day feud is over or at least paused. So I was going to initially give this a bad, but the end of that match and all, everything else, it fully flipped it for me. This was good. Yeah, I, I thought it was a light good. Again, it was it was a story and a match that they built to. I agree. I like that Mia Yim is staying around and, and being involved uh, after getting pulled away in the war game stuff. So yeah, like not a ton, not a ton to this, but I, I thought it was set up well and executed well. And like you said, the finish was good. I give it a light good. And then the second match that was set up that was Dominic against Tazawa. Mysterio got shots early. Tazawa went on a run and even hit his shining wizard. He missed his signature flying senton, which is his finisher. And Dom immediately jumped onto the ropes and hit a frog splash to get the win. He then went to attack further after the bell when the Street Profits made the save and chased Judgment Day out of the ring. So there's really nothing to write home about here. I just thought it was a good way to get Dom a much needed decisive victory. I think that's two now that they've given him recently. They're clearly beginning a build for him, presumably some type of notable WrestleMania match likely involving Rey Mysterio. So I thought it was a positive development. Yes, positive it was Dominic in a different setting, fighting a different type of person. And instead of necessarily being the coward from a bigger guy, it was a smaller guy you could kind of work with. This is an example of like, if you have a team, a faction or whatever, you can use them in different contexts. And this is one. Yeah. Have it just have Dominic go off and do a thing with Tazawa. Like you can do that for an episode and it works and it get, it'll get him some extra heat. Cause he tries to steal the money or whatever. It's so like, I like this is why I like the whole poker thing, because it created a lot of things coming out of it. It felt natural with everybody. So, yeah, this was a good. Yeah, none of it was exceptionally great or anything, but it did create reasons for matches on the show. And that, for me, at least was appreciative or appreciated. And now we also have, you know, the OC doing something else, at least briefly. Judgment Day doing something else. We've given the Street Profits something to do that does not involve the tag team titles. Now them linking with Tazawa, I'm sure they're going to do a six man next week. You know, that's not the greatest thing. And, and I assume Judgment Day will win that. And then maybe we get a Street Profits Judgment Day tag team match that the Street Profits win. I mean, all these things are pretty obvious that they're going to come forward from this, but they're giving everyone stuff to do. For me, it's just, hey, you have Finn Balor here. You know, why isn't he involved in this United States championship picture? And again, we go back to the fact that there's not a world title on Raw. You have AJ Styles and you have Finn Balor. 
in these tag team six man faction feuds and they're not really going for anything. And it's just like, well, they both should be because they're super talented. So that needs to still get figured out. But look, we've said it numerous times. Nothing likely is going to change until after WrestleMania, if even then. So let's go back over to SmackDown. We had Shayna Baszler against Emma. Moss, Madcap Moss, gave Emma a pep talk in gorilla position, which basically taught the audience how integral a role she played in the women's revolution during her time in NXT. And because he said such nice things, she kissed him on the cheek. Emma hit a draping neckbreaker and put Shayna in a tarantula over the ropes, but Baszler locked her in the Kirifuda clutch for the win in four minutes. Shotzi then made the save when Shayna tried to attack Emma after the bell, only for Shotzi to just eat a knee. Then Raquel Rodriguez came in with an arm brace, and she was the muscle to shave to save Shotzi, and shaving Shotzi would have been weird, saving Shotzi and clearing the ring. So look, this definitely made Baszler look strong, but it also made Shotzi look completely pathetic. Coming out, being the number one contender just last week, coming out to save Emma, technically having a little bit of an advantage and still getting her ass kicked by Baszler. It's actually a really tough grade because I appreciated how they gave fans insight into Emma and they let her get some offense and they developed the relationship with Moss. That was all positive, but the match was way too short for her to actually build excitement or fan loyalty. And both her loss and Shotzi's beatdown made them come off as super weak. And then you have Raquel coming out. She's in an arm brace. She can't even wrestle. So what's the point of that happening? We're also getting a Shotzi Baszler rematch already next week. So I'm leaning bad. It wasn't awful, but it was bad. My biggest takeaway from this segment was, I think it was Cole mentioning that Emma used to be a big part of the JBL and Cole show and Wade Barrett saying that they need to bring it back, <laughs> which I completely agree with. Did you watch the JBL and Cole I show back I have never seen a single episode of that show. It was it was a YouTube show that they just put on the YouTube channel once a while. Basically, it was kind of like BTE before BTE, I think, was a thing, which was just wrestlers backstage doing skits. Oh, I and thought it, it was a talk adva- show. I, I just assumed. no, no, and it, no, and it like advanced week to week, and it, it was oh, it was incredible. Like they did wrestler wrestler wrestling court one time. It was very funny, and I was just like, oh yeah, like that's something they should bring back. So I, I don't know if Wade Barrett just I don't know if Wade and Cole planned to say that or what, but especially with, with JBL and always on Raw, doesn't have to be the exact same thing, but that was a really funny show. As for the rest of this, it was kind of whatever. It was good to make Shayna Baszler look strong, I guess. Um, but you're right. Raquel Rodriguez has a big thing on her arm. I just, it's it was kind of a mess. It was very short. It's just the, the just two strongest women on SmackDown this. right now are Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler, and they're not competitors. They're, teammates they're friends so yeah it's, it's like okay so they're dominant and then what now there may be an answer coming up that we're going to talk about in a moment doesn't seem like a good answer so i just don't exactly know what they're doing Shotzi looked like a total dork here agree yep okay so the thing i just alluded to is lacey evans is now getting back to basics we got a full vignette for lacey who is now doing like a military gimmick like a real military gimmick she was wearing fatigues, having returned to basic training to get back into the zone and become a real competitor again. She had her hair tied back, super dark eye makeup. I thought it was easily the best and most serious look that she's had in WWE or NXT. I've never, I never once liked the sassy Southern Belle or the version of it that she did in NXT. The thing that she came back with, I mean, we ran, I ranted how much I hated those vignettes and how fake they felt, and they couldn't decide whether they were going heel or face. That thing was completely botched. 
So it's good that they're actually doing a full reset and having her do this gimmick. And again, the look, just the way she looked serious, really kind of put together for the first time. It just, it gave off a different vibe that she's coming back and she's going to be this military badass, maybe even in the vein of someone like a Ken Shamrock, right? Or a, uh, a black Steve Blackman. I almost called him Ken Blackman. A, a Steve Blackman, just someone who is there to fight and do nothing else except cause pain and win matches. And if they actually do that with Lacey Evans, I think it'll set her apart from the rest of the roster and actually get her over either as a heel or a babyface. Now, there's no telling what happens. This is like her fifth repackage and all the rest have either failed or not gotten off the ground. But I got to tell you, so far, so good. Yeah, I was kind of, we'll see because like you said, she's been repackaged a few times and they've botched it a few times. And I don't know. I was someone who liked all the vignettes that she did talking about her difficult upbringing and how it shaped her. The problem was it went on way too long and then they brought her back and then immediately said people have to stand for her. And then you weren't sure if she was healer face and they completely blew that whole thing up after they had clearly put a lot of time and effort. And I think a lot of mental work into it for Lacey Evans to kind of just talk about this trauma she's been through and they completely messed it up. So like, I'll believe they have this right when I see it. I think she's pretty talented. I think she can do some interesting things, but she's been put in extremely bad situations and the company has waffled on these things and it really hurts her. So we'll see. I, I, I'm glad to see her back. I don't know. I get emphasizing military. I assume they're going to have us cheer her when she comes back. Like I would they tried to so. initially yeah. with, with the previous package. But I just think she's better as a heel. She's a very good heel. She she got legitimate heel heat in that. Was it the Money in the Bank match uh, that, that she was in? She's a good heel. Mm -hmm. And this kind of feels like they're not going to do that. So we'll see. Yeah, it feels like they might bring her back and kind of create her as a top challenger for Rousey before she gets her WrestleMania match. So like the interim challenger before presumably Becky Lynch goes and either wins the Royal Rumble or figures out another reason to challenge and fight her. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm interested. SmackDown, they're adding women. The problem is the disparity of women's roster. I don't want to say talent, but overness. The popularity of the women on SmackDown is so much lower than it is on Raw. Not to mention the fact that the women's champion on SmackDown is like, I mean, shockingly, R Rousey is doing the worst work of her WWE career, where you have Bianca Belair yes. largely doing the best work of her career. So the top of your division is weak and the rest of your division on SmackDown is weak. Whereas on Raw, the top of your division is strong and the rest of your division is as good as a women's division has ever been. And yes, I'm, I realize Sasha Banks isn't around and Charlotte Flair is not around and them coming back, if both of them do, or at least if Charlotte does, they will raise the rent. But there's so many really good women's wrestlers on Raw right now that even without them being around, it's still an all-time women's division on a singular brand. It's, it's just, it's fantastic. So the amount of women on Raw and SmackDown right now, they've reached a good number. They've, they've rebuilt the divisions and things are going well. It's the way they're aligned. It's the number of talented over women on Raw. The disparity is so much greater in that favor than it is on SmackDown. They badly need a draft or a trade or a shakeup or something to kind of put some of these big names that are super over 
on SmackDown and bring some of the other names that need to get developed and brought up into upper mid-carters. They need to move over to Raw. So, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen, when it's going to happen. I have a feeling they're going to do a draft after WrestleMania at this point. That's a long time between now and then. And if you just look at the divisions, like I said, there's just a great disparity between the way they're constructed. There's plenty of talent on both sides. It's just different types of talent with different levels of popularity. Yeah, no, I agree. There's not much else to really add to that. Okay, no, that's fine. We talked about, you know, we've talked so much on the show about the women's division needing to get reset under Triple H. And I think that we've largely gotten that over the last couple of weeks. They're putting new women in positions. They're creating new feuds. They're getting away, obviously, from the damage control storyline directly with Bianca Belair, Asuka, and Alexa Bliss. All of those are really big positives. And it was even better on Raw than it was, for me at least, on SmackDown, although both, again, step in the right direction. So that is it from this week in the world of WWE. We had plenty, of course, to talk about and cover regarding SmackDown and Raw, even some things that superseded that, that came from outside the television shows as well. It was great to, again, bring you this edition, and we will be back same bat time, same bat channel, one week from now, next Tuesday, with our next WWE episode of the Getting Over wrestling podcast. Between now and then, though, there is still plenty coming for your ear holes. First, on Thursday, we will have an NXT and AEW show. That will serve as your NXT deadline ultimate preview. And then Saturday, as soon as NXT deadline goes off the air, we will have an NXT deadline instant analysis podcast. Whether there is a live show for NXT deadline or not, I'm not exactly sure yet. A pre-show, that is on Twitter spaces. That remains to be seen. I will let you know as we get a little bit closer, but we will have pre and post show grades available for you guys to vote in on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So don't forget to follow us at Getting Overcast. We post the poll an hour before the show begins, and then as soon as it ends, and you, our Getting Overheads, can provide your grades for the show. And we will, of course, read those on the instant analysis and break the entire thing down. And lastly, on the way out here, allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live here on the show. And if we hit 400 ratings on Apple before the end of 2022, as I said, we will stop mentioning it twice per show. We will drop it just once per show. Thanks once again to Vintage Chris Vanini for joining. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.